This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Good Things, the show where we talk to good people who are doing good things. I'm Darshan Johan. David Verbecht is a photojournalist currently living in Hungary. For more than 20 years, David has travelled around the world, documenting humanitarian emergencies and stories of marginalised people. From the 16th to the 23rd of March 2023, David has a photo exhibition at the KL Slango Chinese Assembly Hall called Burmese Minorities and Endless Oppression. The exhibition is co-organised by the Youth Wing of the KL Slango Chinese Assembly Hall and Beyond Borders Malaysia. It is supported by the Belgian Embassy and the ASEAN Parliamentarians for Human Rights. David joins me on the show today to talk about his journey as a photojournalist and his upcoming exhibition. Welcome to the show, David. How are you? Thank you very much. I'm very well and I'm very honoured to be to be invited to this uh, to this radio show and to have the opportunity to, to talk about subjects that maybe are not so common. Yeah, honestly, David, the honour is mine. Um, before we get into some of the details, um, I want to talk to you about what exactly you do first, because you're an independent um, photojournalist. Um, some have called you a, a documentary photographer. Um, some call you photojournalist. Many terms have been used. Um, how do you like to d- talk about, like, you know, how would you describe your job and what exactly do you do? So um, my job is, um, yeah, I consider myself a photographer who who tells stories and where the the story of the the story of the people that I encounter is is really central. It's not myself which is central. I just have to care to get to those places to be able to tell those those stories. But it's really about the uh, trying to find untold stories, which I think are important, and uh, that's. That's really what I'm after. Being independent is um, has a big advantage. Is that I can choose uh, what what I work on. Uh, I'm not under pressure to deliver. So if something doesn't go well or doesn't feel right, I'm, I'm I don't have this pressure to to publish or to 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 deliver. Um, on the other hand, of course, as being independent, you are basically alone uh, with people, of course, and and the different contexts you work, but you don't have this logistic support that you may have if you work, right. of course, for uh, for a media outlet. Uh, right. And what exactly do you focus on? So I, I focus on, on humans and mm-hmm. on on conflict post conflict situation but the the main uh, the most important uh, let's say criteria for me to to choose stories and to to work on them is really that uh, they are stories which are really under the the radar which are not being uh, covered so much because they are not that popular or or because they are just not important enough in in world politics probably um they are very related to to social humanitarian conditions of of um of the places of people i i do visit uh, this has probably also to do with my background because i have not worked only as as a photojournalist uh, during my whole career, but I had also 20 years of uh, of work with humanitarian organizations and, and with the EU in terms of structural aid and, and emergency aid before. So um, I think, yeah, it's, it's a little bit a hole that 
uh, that brings me to the type of photography I do. Uh, I work long term. That means that I, I, I prefer to, I do often return back and back and back to the same places um, to because that's for me the only way to really go in depth and, and to really create uh, a relation of trust with, with the people I'm working with or and who are the subject of, of, uh, of my stories. Did you always want to be, uh, you know, always wanted to do um, photojournalism or did you start off as wanting to do photography, just become a, photog a photographer and the journalism aspect, um, telling stories of marginalized groups and, and whatnot, did that come after? Uh, no, um, because uh, no, it's it's really the other way around. So photography was for me a way of expressing myself about things happening, not necessarily around me, but you have to know that I was 18 years old when the wall of Berlin uh, collapsed. So uh, this has very much uh, shaped my uh, my roots, my my destiny, I would say, because immediately after that, uh, I really wanted to go on this other side, which, having grown up in Western Europe, was for us uh, always a dark area. At least that's how we were were told. The communist world, Eastern Europe, was was very a very big question mark for for my generation we we didn't really know so when when the wall collapsed and suddenly people started to move across this physical wall but basically a much longer line going from all northern europe to to the south of europe um i was really attracted of of going there and see what is happening how people live and so on this is really how uh, this has really brought me to to photography so uh, that's basically when i decided to quit my uh, studies of economics at university in the more classical way right. and to start and to enroll at the academy of photography and then started uh, in Romania and Eastern Europe and Kurdistan and then other crises. The, the, the atmosphere back then is, was completely different than no, there was no, no mass media, CNN and, and BBC World. These are just uh, channels that started to timidly appear actually with, with those world events. Um, and um, yeah, that's how basically I came, I came to, to photography. Right. Um, but of course, realizing also the, the the difficulties, and you know, when you're twenty twenty years old, it's not it's not easy to 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 uh, to uh, to work in that uh, in that field. Even it's a very competitive field, and and so on. So, yeah, that's right. that's how how basically I I started with photography. Uh, you you brought up something interesting was that the fall of the Berlin Wall. Took place during a pivotal moment in your, you know, in in in, in your life, which is when, when you were eighteen years old, oh, and and that curiosity that you had, um, which is what ultimately uh, ultimately led you to become a photojournalist. That the curiosity to see what's on the other side of the wall. What did you see? What did you discover? Mm, well, it's. Um, I went to Romania actually. Mm -hmm. um, I was already studying photography then, but just started like six weeks, and with other people, with with colleagues, students, um, we just sat and and um, one of them had um, was of Romanian origin, 
and um, said what is happening now in Romania with uh, the potential fall of Ceausescu and so on. So, uh, no, it doesn't mean a lot, but at that time, this were really... Uh, really marking events like when Gorbachev one year later was was right. removed from power and so on. And uh, so what only five people of 19-year, 20-year-old can do, one had a car. Uh, we put the money we had together, we sat in the car and uh, were off to Romania. And that's how it started. None of them returned afterwards. I have returned five times in the same year. Spent more time in Romania than than uh, than at the academy, basically. But yeah, that that was okay. And from that time on, I've never really looked back again. It was really for for so yes. What what did I discover there in Romania? Was was a country in in worse were uh, scenes that that I had never even imagined. Uh, again, we had very little information of what is going on, not only on the other side of the of the Berlin Wall, but um, even in our environment. This it was not. Now you know everything before it even happens. <laughs> but but at that time, no. Right. It's it's the only thing you had was the television, which which again was the state television right. at that time, even in Western Europe. So it's it's uh, it's a very channeled news and world news even still today when I when I visit my parents and I see the the, the French or the Belgium news uh, it's 90 95% is what happens locally and international news is like one min, one one minute 30 even right. in, in 2023 so you can imagine in, in 89 and 1990 um, so yes, this this was, um, and of course, being inspired also by by uh, photographers who, mm-hmm. who who already went before the fall of the Berlin Wall, who were older than us, and so on. So yes, this this has really inspired me, and um, this is then how also I I uh, I came into contact with uh, humanitarian organizations, right. And um, who who had a need of of having images at that time already to do fundraising and so on. Um, so I had the opportunity to work um, to work for them sometimes. Their work was for me interesting, and that's when I decided to um, to start uh, studies in France, which were at that time very new in international aid, um, a degree in international development, and. Um, that's how then I ended up by working uh, with with humanitarian organizations. Right, uh, David. There are many ways to tell stories. Why photography? Um, first, probably because I'm I'm quite a lousy writer, <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, yeah, photography. I don't know. I've I've grown up in in um, with friends and. In, in Paris, so even though I was living in Belgium, um, who were very much into cinematography, making short movies and so on. So I was I was uh, helping out with making the set photos, uh, organizing the lighting and things like this, very on a very amateuristic level. And then ha- having a camera, and and um, I had a camera. Even f- when I was very young, already seven, eight years old, I got a camera from my uncle. Uh, participated in school workshops and uh, the photo clubs of the schools, and some. So I have, I have 
my my uncle is an, was an artist, so so he was using photography to to paint and so on. So yeah, I've, unconsciously this obviously has influenced right. me. But what really has triggered is is to use my camera to to try to witness what I see around me. What is what was right. at that time really extraordinary events? What happened between eighty nine and beginning nineteenth? Then the war in Yugoslavia and Bosnia, where where then I have spent the year as well and and so on and so on so yeah this were um this were different different times than now so so um yeah. yeah and and you talk about your uncle who was an artist i'm wondering did your family members also you know while you were growing up um, talk a lot about social justice and current affairs and things like that because you seem to be like a teenager or a young adult who was very curious about current affairs about what is going on in the world out there um, yeah with a bit of little news we could get I mean we are a family which is quite spread out because I'm, I'm half French half half Belgium my mother is French so uh, I have family in France I had family in Belgium um, my aunts uh, worked for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, so they, they were in exotic countries sometime in post and so on. So yes, I guess when I was, when I was, uh, but I have always been interested by geography and by going beyond my neighborhoods and, and uh, from from small off, I have always wanted to move and, and so on. So I think it's very related to my uh, to my character, who whom I am. And still today, people say you you're never in the same place. You're you're always moving. You should. You should, uh, <laughs> you should take it easy, <laughs> and, and so on. So I think this is, yeah, this is something I have in, in myself, and this, of course, curiosity to, to, to see how how things are elsewhere, right. whatever they are different or or not. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how I came across you, David, is because of um, the photography work that you have done um, with the people of Myanmar, right? Um, and and your work is extensive. You've worked um, with Myanmar, uh, with the people of Myanmar, uh, documenting um, their hardship, um, some of their sufferings for many many years. Why did you start focusing on stories from Myanmar? Uh, because of the Rohingya, mm -hmm. um, and uh, so the Rohingya, I I knew already from end end of the. Um, end of the 80s, beginning of 90s, when the first persecutions, well, not the first, but the significant or the ones that reached the international news, let's say. Um, so there were already waves then of, of uh, people, Rohingya being persecuted in Myanmar, fleeing to, to Bangladesh. The first wave in Bangladesh arrived end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. Um, so I was already influenced by photographers who are maybe who are now 10, 15 years older than me, obviously when I was 18, 20. Uh, so I saw already their work about the Rohingya. The Rohingya was at that time something completely unknown. Well, right. still still less today, but uh, still five years ago was very much unknown. Mm -hmm. um, so also when I was working with Doctors Without Borders, with whom I worked for five years, of course, I, I, uh, I knew that this was one of the acute hit 
Sweden uh, crisis in in the world during the 90s and, and the 2000s. And then 2012, um, again, massacres and, and um, populations being expelled, put, put in camps, which are actually prison camps. Um, I did some some uh, work in in, uh, in Bangladesh. So that's when I started to establish contact to try to to start to visit, and I managed this as, as of 2015. And since then, uh, I have never stopped. But I must say, originally, I was working exclusively uh, on the Rohingya community right. as well in Bangladesh and in uh, in, um, <clears throat> in Myanmar. Um, this has evolved into the other minorities as well after 2017. When 2017, with the big massacres, which I started to document in 2016 because they didn't start in 2017 only. They already started one year before. Um, suddenly, the Rohingya issue became world news and, and main news and with a lot of coverage, with a lot of people. So the context of working was for me not really appropriate anymore because, not because of the competition, but because of this, I would call it media circus at a certain time and humanitarian right. circus as well in, in 2017-18. So the needs were enormous. I don't, um, I don't say the contrary, but uh, there was enormous coverage suddenly from nothing, from something. I remember I had an, a small exhibition in the US uh, with some photos of the Rohingya. I was interviewed by journalists there who were asking me, so Rohingya, which country is this? So there was a complete lack of knowledge, right. even with people who would supposedly be informed right. if, if they do an interview about the about the subject. So this changed completely in 2017 and 18. There was a lot of attention to it, whereas at the same time the other minorities in Myanmar, which are also persecuted for the past 70 years, Myanmar is the country with the longest conflict, internal conflict, armed conflict uh, in the world. There is no other place in the world where they have been fighting. Um, against the central government or regime as as uh, as Myanmar and not only um, again also the all the other minorities in the country so that's when I started in 2018 to to establish contacts with with other minority groups started to visit them and, and repeatedly and but of course the work I did with the, with the Rohingya the exhibitions I had here and in Europe and in, in, in the world have of course opened me many doors in Myanmar not with the regime well, not with the regime obviously <laughs> but, but with other ethnic right. groups and um, so since 2018 I've still a little bit I was in Bangladesh in September again uh, it was four years well COVID has also a little bit put a halt on, mm -hmm. on all this uh, travel and uh, going forth and back uh, but uh, yeah I do still follow because again now the Rohingya have fallen very down the, the scale of importance and in, in world news and coverage so so I'm again now restarting a little bit but but less than than uh, than other than other areas uh, and of course since the coup in Myanmar the situation has changed dramatically on the show with me today is David Verbeck, a photojournalist. After the break, we discuss how he finds the balance between capturing candid moments and respecting the dignity of his subjects. Keep it here on Good Things, BFM 89.9.
Welcome back to Good Things. I'm Darshan Johan. And on the show with me today is David Verbacht, a photojournalist. So, David, what have you learned? What have you discovered? What are the people in Myanmar, especially the Rohingya minorities? What have what do they go through? And how has the ch- situation, uh, how does the situations compare beyond, before the coup and after the coup? Okay, so before the coup, um, and this this is something very important to to um, to highlight and, and to insist on, is uh, before the before the coup, even during um, the five year transition government of Fansan Shusi, there was enormous human rights abuses. Right. The largest massacres against the Rohingya took place during a so-called civilian government watch, uh, justified by them, even going to The Hague, to the International Tribunal, to, to justify what the military was doing in, in, uh, in expelling basically one almost one million people from their homes, killing many, having mass rapes and so on. Unfortunately, these are practices that have happened before uh, that happened before 2017 as well, and with other minorities. Having covered now, having spent a lot of time with other minorities in Karen State and Kachin and and Chin, uh, in Rakhine, even um, it's it's uh, very obvious that this is a technique, military technique of of expelling people, burning. It's ethnic cleansing, uh, which is not. Uh, a uh, which is not a uh, trademark of Myanmar only. This happened in many other countries, in Yugoslavia, in uh, in, uh, in Africa, to 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 make the population. Uh, but the, the the level of atrocities committed uh, is towards minority is, is has always been there. Now the difference for the minorities is that um, so during during the past seventy years, minorities except the Rohingya, but other minorities they have organized themselves and administrating the, the territories right. they control, um, establishing armed groups, uh, professionally armed groups, which are armed and so on, to, to defend themselves. Unfortunately, the Rohingya have never been in a position to do uh, so, so that's why they are even much more vulnerable mm-hmm. than, than the other, other communities. But mass rapes uh, still today, before the coup, uh, 40 years ago, 20 years ago, have always occurred, not only with the Rohingya, also with, with the other minority groups. Um, now, the, the big difference since the coup is two things, is that the minority groups are still being uh, attacked, and, but are defending them well, fiercely. They are creating alliances as well. The thing is that now Myanmar is using, which they did not do before the coup, or very rarely, it happens, but rarely. Now they, especially since last year and, and beginning this year, they are extensively using airstrikes um, on villages indiscriminately, um, considering everybody who is not with them against them. So, uh, um, bombarding using helicopters, attack helicopters, and and so on. So th- this is this is a big difference in terms of I would say military tactic because they don't have the ground troops anymore to fight in all the corners of the country at once against the armed groups. Right. Um, so the other main difference is that for the first time since the coup, you have now the majority Bamar population of Myanmar mm-hmm. who is organizing themselves to fight against the military, uh, which is a first time and are allying them together with minority, ethnic minority groups and so on to fight a common enemy. 
uh, that that is the main change. So now it's not again it's not the central government, the military against ethnic minority groups only anymore. It's against the general population, and that wa- that's what makes what is happening now in Myanmar an, an, an absolute humanitarian catastrophe with millions and millions of displaced people. Uh, but we shouldn't make the mistake. The minority, uh, the minorities are still the ones which are mostly uh, persecuted. They are not bombarding by planes, the big cities where there is also a lot of internal resistance. They are bombarding the ethnic minority areas uh, until the border with Thailand, until the border with India, even sometimes um, with Bangladesh and, and and so on. So yeah, this the the level the level of uh, violence, but more the the level of sophistication of arms they use, uh, including night raids with planes and so on. This is something completely new in the past weeks, no, past two, two months. That is really, really heartbreaking and worrying. Um, circling back to your approach to photography, right? How do you approach your sub- subjects and build relationships with the people you photograph? And why is building relationships important? Well, I, I do uh, entirely depend in any context, not only in Myanmar, everywhere on uh, people to tell me their stories, people to bring me to those stories, um, and um, people taking risks to bring me in some certain areas. Uh, because of, if I take the context of, of Myanmar, obviously uh, I cannot be, especially now since the coup, I cannot travel through Myanmar. I have to enter the country through other through other ways uh, without going in, in, in details. Uh, so um, I do rely on people. Um, so the, f- the, first, the first criteria is this, these people are very keen to have you tell their stories. Uh, I have to measure that they don't take immeasurable risks to get me to some place because it's risk for them, it's risk for me as well. Right. Uh, so I have really to balance the, the the story that waits somewhere and how to get there. And, and th- this this is the biggest challenge usually in, in right. any context. Um, and then um, is going back is fundamental uh, going back if possible to the same place and revisiting the same people uh, this gives you suddenly access to stories to their being uh, completely uh, different than than when you met them the first time when you meet the first time usually you're just one of the of the many who have passed by, who are interested by your story, but that's about it. You know, you write your article for your journal and or your your newspaper, and and um, and we'll never hear from you again. So the fact of returning to the same places, sometimes in very short time. So like, like I was in in Chino in um, in September, and I went back six weeks later uh, in, uh, in November. Um, this, this, uh, yes, this open doors that, um, because this creates uh, a trust, a, a relation of trust. And this is very important is without that you, you, you cannot, cannot get even close. Right. Uh, right. In a superficial way, maybe yes, but, but not, uh, 
And that's how then that's where you can touch the ethics mm -hmm. of sometimes you may think that uh, it's not ethical or uh, it can affect the dignity of the person. Right. So how, how do you strike that balance, right? How do you find the balance between the need to capture an authentic or a candid moment with the need to respect the privacy and the dignity of your sus subjects? How do you prevent or ensure that your photos do not come off as poverty porn or, you know, war, war porn and, and things like that. What do you do? Uh, it's it's not always not always easy because, of course, uh, um, but one uh, the, the main guarantee to to not fall, not to fall into this trap is uh, Returning, uh, building uh, trust with people, not maybe a specific person you may have photographed or you will photograph, but the people around, the people who bring you there and, and so on. People asking, can you come? I want to tell stories when, when I have in, in 2017, uh, 18 uh, in Bangladesh interviewed, uh, visited women that have been victim of atrocities. Um, yes, uh, it was of course never, uh, never without their consent and their agreement that, uh, with the face uncovered or not covered and so on. So this, this is where, where you need time to to discuss. It's not a negotiation. You feel it. Sometimes you just need eye contact with with your subject to know. Sometimes I take a picture and I say I will never never publish this because. Even if the pe person wants it and doesn't have any problem, for me, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel right, and so on. But of course, there is always the risk when you arrive, for instance, in an area for the first time, which which has been very uh, affected by mm -hmm. by uh, by conflict, by which is still under which is on the front line or whatever. Of course, you have the tendency. To to photograph because you don't know how long you will be able to stay there. Um, usually in these places you don't really meet civilians too much. It's usually it's usually a military. So that's another issue in right. terms of do they want to be on the picture or, or not. But I, I do fully respect this. But of course sometimes yeah you can um, sometimes say oh did I take this you know you don't even realize uh, um, and I think. It's an evolution. The longer you stay in a context, so Myanmar now I have been in and out there for the past eight eight years. Um, I, I don't pretend to to understand the situation there and to know, but I think uh, I have I have have had a lot of different situations uh, with with a common ground, which makes me feel quite comfortable that I know that when I photograph a person, um, I don't necessarily need to ask them, can I take your right. picture? Uh, because I know that I would not be there in front of this person in the first place if they don't want me to take the picture. Right. Uh, so, but then again, if uh, um, that's why there is a process called post Editing, editing, which which is very important, which is what you show, what you don't show, what you what you keep. Uh, Absolutely. But it's not an easy. It's it's right. not necessarily an easy process. But with experience, I think it comes a little bit automatic. Uh, but yeah, 
Um, I tend to avoid to enter too much into the discussion. This is poverty porn or this and that because everybody has different different opinion. Uh, for me, what's important is that I tell a story that the people I photograph want to be told. Right. If they don't want, I don't. Why should I take risks to go there and to put them in an uncomfortable situation whatsoever? Right. So, um, has have you, has your job ever been scary? Have you been in a in a situation where you're Worried whether for your safety, for your life, or anything like that. Um, less than when I was working in two humanitarian operations in mm. Afghanistan and Rwanda and Bosnia during the war and so on. Obviously, um, I try to avoid conflicts, open conflicts like Ukraine. No, I, I, I'm, I'm not really interested there because it's it's very well covered, over covered, right. and. Um, so I measure very well. Also with age, you 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 measure the risks, and uh, and um, for me, there is no story worth to risk your life right. uh, because you don't risk your life only. You risk the life of all the people who help you to 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 do it. That's also why I don't like to work too much with the so-called professional fixers. What is that? Well, these are people who, who, uh, for instance, when Al Jazeera arrives in a context, in a camp, they need a translator, they need a driver, they need, they they splash the dollars, and and they get people who, who will speak flawlessly English and so on, uh, who will make a lot of money in two, three days, but only for two, three days. And then, of course, when you come after as an independent, they they uh, yeah, they expect, they think this is normal. And um, so, yeah, I tend to avoid this because these are people who will be ready to take unreasonable risks because for them, every day they do with you is as as uh, as an income. Yeah. So, but that, that's uh, that's that's a detail. This is not this is not very important. What's important is to choose very well the people, and most of the people in very tough contexts I've been working are no very good friends <laughs> because, of course, we have gone through through sometimes difficult right. moments and, and and so on. But uh, but we yeah I, I assess very very well the risks uh, before. But of course. No Myanmar, for instance, with uh, with airstrikes, it's not that easy to, right. to assess uh, because this is very new and uh, it's very sudden. And uh, so, so why uh, do you keep doing what you're doing despite the dangers? Yeah, you said you know with age you are not going to go into a if, like a like a sort of Russia Ukraine war situation and be in the thick of it. But you know it it's still. Still, it poses significant challenges. You still, like you said, in in Myanmar, airstrikes are new. It, it it's still it's still a job that contains some amount of danger, some amount of uncertainty. Why do you keep doing this then? But uh, again, this this moments uh, like probably the most scary, uh, one of the most scary moments recently was was last year. Well, no, in, in 20, 2021, when I was um, covering what is happening in the Western Sahara, which mm-hmm. is also a completely forgotten uh, conflict uh, going on since since the seventies, the oldest colonial war in Africa, whatever. So I went there with with. Uh, um, I went there also on the front lines and jeeps that were cut in two so that the drones would not uh, followed by drones who can attack and so on. So yeah, this and then moments you you wonder is it really worth to 
to um, to do that or, or not. But it's part. It's sometimes part of the thing. You cannot just. Uh, there are many refugees. There are two hundred thousand refugees there in the middle of the desert right. since the seventies. You cannot just go there uh, two three times and just make photos of the refugees there. You have to explain the whole context around, right. which might involve some risks. So what do you choose? Do you choose to have a more UNHCR approach of making pictures of the refugees to do fundraising? Or do you want to try to explain the context to try maybe to influence people that can influence policies on right. these specific uh, things? That's what I, I prefer to touch... 100 people um, or 10 people that maybe can have a reflection and, 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 and influence decisions or change things than, than to have it shown to 250,000 people on, or to have 200,000 likes on Instagram or whatever, but where nothing will, will, will change for the person. Absolutely. The, the population and the, the context. So, yeah. Um, I think it's it's a question of of balancing the risks and and of course sometimes and recently not recently but two three years ago I I decided to concentrate at least equally if not more and more on on climate change on on but not climate change generally but climate change how it affects the habitat of people right. uh, not necessarily floods and so on but other other uh, uh, drought and, uh, and glaciers that are melting and uh, and how it affects communities uh, also in the Amazon and Brazil during covid so i right. thought yeah this will be less risky right. less uh, there is no shooting and no Right. <laughs> it's much more. It's much more violent than 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 a conflict. And a conflict, you know who who is fighting who in general. But right. with environmental issues, Latin America, Brazil, Colombia, it's not. Uh, it's it's uh, it's very very potentially very dangerous. And you don't know in a split second the situation can change, even with people that are around you and so on. So I have found this much more challenging than. Then it's also because I know less the context, obviously. Right. But um, it's uh, from the moment you want to investigate or you put your nose in, <laughs> um, in stories that no, that are not reaching an international audience. You obviously there is a reason why they don't reach an international audience, and not because they are not popular or whatever. You make things popular, popular if you want. It's because yeah, there are risks related to it, and, and um, that that will not make sell more newspapers or more this or that. So that's when you enter into more investigation journalism, or without having the pretension to investigate. But when you put your nose in things that are locally set uh, and and if you want to disturb that of course uh, it gets very dangerous much more dangerous than covering a war uh, right absolutely you know. now david um you have an upcoming photo exhibition here in Kuala Lumpur. It's called Burmese Minorities and Endless Oppression. Tell me a little bit more about this documentary. What can people expect? 
uh, well, for, for me, it's a very important to, to be able to show this in, in, um, in Malaysia and in Kuala Lumpur, I hope in other places in the region as well, because um, what I want to the, the main objective of the exhibition is really to touch people from Malaysian society to show them look, this is what is happening in, in Myanmar. No, before. The coup, is not, the coup is not a trigger of refugees. Uh, refugees have always been there. Refugees, they have a very good reason to be refugees is because their house is bombed out, because they flee for their life. And um, th this is something um, which I think is very important to show why do people... Uh, leave their houses. It's not because they can get a job here or they can have a better life. Hopefully they can have a better life, but the, the primary reason is they have to flee. Nobody flees because he, he thinks... So we, we really... Uh, it's With this exhibition, I really want to show what is happening in Myanmar. It's not happening since the coup. It's happening for many, many, many years. Right. And the many, many refugees, Myanmar refugees that are in, in India, in Bangladesh, here in Malaysia, uh, in Thailand and so on, has, has, a, has a reason, has a reason of persecution, of uh, extermination in some cases. Um, that's, that's, I think, the main, the main message uh, that I want to, to, to pass through and that this is an ongoing conflict and that's, and unless the conflict, the root of the conflict is not solved, which is the supremacy of the military since independence of Burma, um, th this, will, this will continue. Uh, migrant workers, uh, whatever rights uh, uh, they may have and need there is in a country for them, are not the same as refugees. Refugees flee persecution. A migrant worker makes a decision for whatever hardship or, or so on, but it's, I would say, between brackets and a more organized way. He, mm -hmm. he still has a home to go back to in general. I still have a family back home and, and so on. Refugees, they flee with whatever they can take, uh, and it's less and less because the attacks are more and more violent. Uh, if I take one, one place I visited in Chin, Tantlang, uh, probably this, this passed in the news, uh, it was burned completely, it was bombarded again now 10, 10 15 days ago. Um, the population of 10,000 people has left the city uh, in September 2021 um, with whatever they could take. And usually when, when you are victim of airstrikes, bombardments, you don't have a lot of time to think what you're taking. You usually you take what you have on yourself and that's it, if you if you're lucky to, to get out of it alive. So yeah, if through the exhibition I can explain this context uh, there through the through the photographs, through through the texts, through through my through my presentation, through the panel we might have as to link, it's not to to look for sympathy for for the Burma cause. It's to really try to to show the cause and effect. Um, and because refugee is, is a hot right. topic in, in Malaysia, right, it and, is. Uh, and if this one day can finally ratify at least the the convention on refugee in, in Malaysia or in the region, because Malaysia is uh, is not uh, is not the only one. Right. There's nobody in the region except the Philippines, I think, and East Timor and Cambodia, because they were 
more or less forced to do so by the UN. Uh, all other countries haven't ratified. Uh, so a refugee doesn't have a status, doesn't have any protection. Um, so if this at least can, can again, the, f the few people that will see, that will listen, if this, if this can influence their, their, uh, their, uh, their speech afterwards, they're influencing other people, that's, uh, I still believe that's how change can slowly, but can, can, be, can be made, at least on my level, that's, that's, that's what I can uh, contribute to in a very, very small way. Absolutely. Um, and um, remind, before we wrap this conversation up, remind us again where the exhibition is and how people can check it out. So the exhibition is, uh, is on Thursday the 16th. Then the exhibition will still be open for, for the public until the 23rd, at least, uh, March. And it's, it takes place in the Kuala Lumpur Selangor uh, Chinese Assembly, Assembly Hall in, uh, in Kuala Lumpur. So yeah, from the, from the 17th on, it will be moved into the atrium, so it will be it will be visible to to everybody from the wider public who who, who wants to who wants to see it. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. On that note, thank you so much for joining me today, David. Thank you for inviting me. It was really a pleasure. That was David Verbeck, a photojournalist. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Good Things, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.